Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, someone called me out the other day. They were like, you stopped introducing yourself. What happened? I was like, I don't know. I just forgot. Um, I thought by now it was just, uh, I'd done enough work, but apparently not. So my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series called Riptide. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, it's an image of what it is to stand in the ocean. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've stood like ankle deep and you felt that undertow, that thing that kind of pulls you into it. That's a picture of what I would say this Jesus story becomes like post-Easter. Jesus has died. He's risen again, but nobody knows. It's changed everything. And yet individually, it's changed nothing because his earliest followers are still in a place where they, they still think he's dead. And what we get to do is we get to watch as this very brilliant Jesus pulls them back into this big story that has changed everything. We get to look at the ways that we are like them. They have a bunch of doubts, a bunch of fears, a bunch of insecurities, all of these different elements that make us, or weaknesses of being human perhaps is a good way of saying it. And Jesus deals with all of them, pulls them into this grand narrative. So if you have a text you'd like to open with me, Luke 24, Luke is one of the biographies of Jesus' life, one of the Gospels, if you're kind of new to this church thing, this Bible thing, verse 13 is where we will start now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these, the things that have happened there these last days? What things, he asked. Jesus kind of playing coy with them a little bit. He kind of knows what happened. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests, our rulers, handed them over, him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things, then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he broke, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, 
and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem where they found the 11 and those with them assembled together saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon when the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. God, would you uh, speak to us here as a community of people, as individuals that need to hear from you, people who come in with all sorts of stories in all sorts of places, as we come to this thing that we call table, communion, breaking of bread, Eucharist, mass. God, would you remind us that this is about your presence, and that's something that we need very deeply wherever we are. God, in this week, as we often pray, would you comfort the afflicted? Would you afflict the comfortable? And would you teach us what it is to live in your way with your heart? Amen. So here we go, Luke chapter 23, verse uh, 13 onwards. Let me start you with a question. Have you ever taken the wrong direction? Are you someone that follows directions well? Are you someone that gets lost easily? Are you someone that would confess to getting lost easily? Are you someone that your husband or wife would say, no, they take the wrong directions repeatedly. They don't listen to simple instructions. I'm guessing most of us at different points have taken a wrong direction, even if it's just because of of not listening. I had what I might call a superpower. Back in another life, uh, when I used to work with students, I was known for one thing. Well, I was known for some things, but, but, but one thing that I'm going to talk about right now is I was known for paying zero attention to road traffic signals whatsoever. I would just flat out ignore them. Now, here's the great thing about emigrating to a different country. When you move to a different country, you get to like forever blame everything that you do wrong on not having grown up in the country that you're now living in. It's a wonderful get out for, for almost everything. So these red things with the white down here, I don't really know what they are. I just kind of just breeze through them because we don't really use them in England. We have all the traffic islands and everything. And so these things, I would just ignore them. But, but perhaps worse still, the one above it, the one-way sign, I used to ignore that one as well. I just wasn't looking for them. And Detroit as a road system is based on, you have one road that goes one way and then a block higher, you'll have a road that goes the other way and so on and so forth. Maybe there's something that exists similar in Denver as well. And so I would regularly turn the wrong way onto one-way streets. And to be honest, nothing ever really went wrong. Like, I'm just surprised. After all this time, I would take these wrong directions all the time, and somehow it would all seem to work out, if not good, at least neutral. I guess I got to where I wanted to go quicker, so maybe that was, it was good in and of itself. Uh, I repeatedly went the wrong direction, um, and it turned out just neutral with a 15-seater passenger bus full of sometimes more than 15 teenagers. Uh, I won't own to it just being 15. I would take the wrong direction repeatedly over and over again. Sometimes taking the wrong direction leads you to a good place. This is a, play, this is a picture of Pelican Lake in Orr, Minnesota, a beautiful place. Laura's family have a, a lake house up there. We'll go in the summer. And the only reason we go here is that many, many years ago, someone said to her grandfather, you really need to take your family on vacation to Pelican Lake in Minnesota. It's going to change your life. And so listening to his dentist, as you should always listen to your dentist, he went and uh, and he said, I'm going to take my family there. Turns out some mischievous person named multiple lakes 
Pelican Lake in Minnesota. So we went to the wrong one and then has gone there every year for the last 40 or so years. In this case, a wrong direction led to, to just joy, happy accident, all of those different things. And then sometimes a wrong direction leads to disastrous results. The writer Dallas Willard begins his book, The Divine Conspiracy, with a story of a jet pilot who on seeing a mountain range goes to pull the plane up to avoid it and crashes straight into the ground. The pilot was flying upside down and had become confused enough that they didn't know what direction they were now heading in. In that case, it leads to disastrous results, right? Wrong directions can be good, can be bad, can be neutral. They happen. Life happens around us. But how many of you have ever taken a wrong direction on purpose? How many have just said, just, I'm just intentionally going to go the wrong way? Maybe this is like the introvert's way of getting out of parties. You're like, if I get lost, I don't have to go. I can stay in my car. Everything will be great. But it's rare, I think, to go the wrong direction, just completely and intentionally on purpose. And yet that is what I would suggest these first followers are doing. Let's begin again. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Now that same day. Two of them will go into a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Let us remind ourselves, this is Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that everything happens, the day that the worldwide story changes forever. And this day, this day when the other disciples are waiting around to see what happened, this day, two of them are getting out of town. Two of them are leaving. Two of them are on their way to this tiny little town called Emmaus that was about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is not the 21st century we're talking about here. People did not go on leisure walks of seven miles or so. That just wasn't part of their culture. And yet these two are at a point where they say, no, we're leaving. What's significant about Emmaus? Nothing is significant about Emmaus. That's the point. Looking back historically, we don't even know where Emmaus was. Some people say maybe seven miles. Some people say 10. Some people say 15. This town is so insignificant. Nothing will ever happen there again. And yet two of them are leaving Jerusalem to go to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem to go to Emmaus. To put this in some context for you, some first century context, what's significant about Jerusalem? Everything is significant about Jerusalem. Everything happens in Jerusalem. When God does something, he does it in Jerusalem. The temple, the center of their faith, it's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is central to everything. That is where God works. And now they're leaving. Now they're like, we're getting out of Jerusalem for some reason. Even think about the stories about Jesus we read today. You've got these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are all centered around Jesus' movement towards Jerusalem. The, The Gospels are interesting biographies. I'll sometimes call them biographies just to help us kind of get a sense of, of what they are in essence, but, but most biographies don't spend half of the time talking about the week somebody died. They spend most of the time talking about the person's life, and yet these stories seem to think everything is so significant about Jesus' death that they spend all of their time and energy there, and it's all centered around what Jesus does and where he does it. These incredible events have happened in Jerusalem. Jesus has died, and everything has paused, and now these two disciples Now they're leaving. Why are they leaving? 
I would suggest they're leaving for multiple practical reasons. They're leaving perhaps because they're scared. They're leaving because the story doesn't look the way that they want the story to look anymore. I would suggest that there's a a load of good reasons we could pull out for leaving Jerusalem. But let's kind of tap into their story a little bit and just see if there's anything in the text that kind of sheds some light on this. Verse 13 and 14, now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Jesus has died. That is their constant conversation. They are going back over the events that have led up to that. Perhaps they're unpacking some of what they hoped would happen on this great weekend when Jesus ends up in Jerusalem on Passover, this special Jewish day, all of the hopes that went along with that there, reiterating just where the story has gone. And then beautifully, in the way that Luke writes, Jesus turns up in the midst of their conversation. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Why would they expect him to be there? They're leaving the place where God works. They're leaving the place where everything happens. They're going in the wrong direction. Why would God turn up when you're actively going in the wrong direction? This God apparently does exactly that. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. These are not two people that are waiting to experience good news. These are not two people that are expecting to hear stories of resurrection. These are two people that have evaluated the story, have said the story isn't where it's supposed to be, and are now leaving the place where most of the story happened. They stood still, their faces downcast. They are miserable, and I love it, love it, when the Bible brings humor into the midst of the story. Because Jesus is going to say something to them, and it just, yeah, makes me chuckle. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? This language, the only one visiting Jerusalem, they suggest that Jesus is a foreigner, an outsider, an alien. All of the things I talked to you about living in a different country, they're like, are you an outsider? You, you don't fit in around here. You seem to have missed everything important that is going on. There's this delicious irony that the writer is very well aware of. They're kind of making fun of Jesus, almost questioning his intelligence. He doesn't know what's going on in the story, and yet they are the ones that are walking alongside Jesus, and they have no clue that it's Jesus they are talking to. Jesus is the only one in the story that knows what's happening. They are clueless, and they are suggesting that he is clueless. A little bit of first century humor there for you. What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in, the wo- in word and deed before God and all the people. These are people that still believe that Jesus fits into the old ways of doing things. The Jewish community waited time and time again for a prophet to come up. He would say something to stir the people up and then society would fix itself for a while and then it would regularly become broken again. They still expect that Jesus might work in this way. He was powerful in word and deed. And what was he going to do? What were we hoping for? The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, if you're a church person, the word redeem might seem familiar. We might use it to talk about being forgiven of sins, Jesus' death and resurrection. But most commonly in this culture, what did it mean right now? What did it mean to redeem Israel? 
meant he was the one that was going to fix the big problem. Maybe you've used that language yourself. Maybe you've looked back and said, ah, remember when this country used to be the way it used to be? Do you remember like 50 years ago, things looked like they should? 30 years ago, things looked like they should? 10 years ago, things looked like they should? We use that language all the time, right? We long to go back to a different time and place. We reflect on those things. I, I would regularly take trips out to a place in Romania and I would engage with this community out there and I would look at it and say, there's something so beautiful about the way that this is operating. It feels so good. And, and I would reflect on how much I longed for society to look like like that again, I'm, I'm not making a comment or a value statement on that. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just observing that we do that and they do it too. Wouldn't it be great if this nation used to be what it was? Wouldn't it be great if someone came in and fixed that we had expected or hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel? We had thought Jesus might make the nation look like the nation should look again. And he didn't. He didn't. The, the expectation failed. It wasn't what we'd hoped it would be. This is a group of people that are disappointed. They are grief-stricken. Yes, their leader is dead, but, but most of all, they're disappointed that the leader didn't live up to their expectations. It's, it's, nothing's going to change now. Jesus, his work did nothing. And then they start to reveal a little bit of the big conversation. You'd almost think they would mention this beforehand, but no, they are filling in this outsider, this stranger with some details about the crucifixion. In addition, some of our women amazed us. That word amazed is a little bit fascinating. It's this Greek word, existemi. Yes, amazed is a good translation, but, but you might say more, more accurately, to put out of standing, to knock somebody off their feet. If you're asking a question related to this word, you might say something like, am I going out of my mind? These women have now come to us with a story that has started to make us question some things. We're kind of a little taken aback by everything that is happening here. But still, still the whole sort of tone of the conversation is it's, it's disappointed. They came and told us that they'd seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but, but they did not see Jesus. There's like the language of, uh, we kind of came to the conclusion they, they might be a little bit crazy. Maybe they'd, maybe they'd lost their minds. There's something strange going on here. Yes, but, but it's not what we hoped for. Really, their words aren't the most important thing about this whole passage. The most important thing, it's their actions. They didn't stay. They weren't hopeful. They left in the midst of this tragedy. Jesus has died and now the only sort of pathway for them is we gotta leave. Think about those of you who joined us last week. Mary Magdalene, this other story, she, she lingers. Yes, she's brokenhearted. Yes, she's had this experience, this encounter with Jesus that has changed everything. Yes, all that's at risk now that he's dead, but she's still... She still stays in the heart of the action, still stays and hopes. But not Cleopas and, and not his companion, they, they go. That song that we sang, this is my story, this is my song, that would, be not, that would not be true of these two right now. To them, it's not their story anymore. To them, they've kind of given up on that. They are leaving the story. 
They're getting as far away from it as they can. Their actions, they remind me of my favorite stage direction in Shakespeare. Now, now why you get Shakespeare two weeks in a row, there is no pattern, but you do. There's this beautiful stage direction in the play A Winter's Tale. It just says this, exit actor pursued by a bear. And so every schoolboy in England that gets to read this play has drawn pictures of just what this looks like to have a bunch of actors fleeing the stage as a bear pursues them. They apparently didn't get an American education where you're told, don't run from bears, right? They're always faster than you. Uh, but they didn't. So you get these delightful little like, sketches of exit pursued by a bear. Uh, you get the beautiful silhouette version of just the guy who's getting out of town. Because I just love pop culture of all kinds, I also throw in this this delightful moment in the movie Paddington 2 where, where Hugh Grant is chasing poor little Paddington down a train and Paddington's about to fall off the end of the train and Hugh Grant looks at him and he says, exit bear pursued by an actor. Little twist on the whole thing right there and I think I was the only person that laughed the first time uh, and the second time and the third and fourth and fifth time. I've seen it an embarrassing amount of times and still laughed regularly. It's a picture of what it is to experience a story, a tale that has come into trauma that is now broken and to leave. In Shakespeare, it's a device that allows the character Antigonus to go and then he'll be killed by the bear because again, if you're out there, you don't run from bears. Uh, the whole, they're more scared of you are than, than, than you than you are of them or whatever is, is not true. They, they will just chase you and do what they did to Antigonus. It allows Antigonus to die and the hero not to get his hands dirty. It's just a literary function, but it is a picture of what it is to experience a struggle in a story and say, we've got to get off stage. We have to go. We have to get out of here. That is what comes to mind for me when I see these two characters leaving this story in Jerusalem. There is a story that has become broken and they say, no, we got to get out of there. Why Emmaus? For no reason other than it's not Jerusalem. We just have to go. They, they are leaving a story they believe to be broken. Think about what they've experienced this week. Think about all of the things they might say about the story they are experiencing. Jesus is dead. That in itself is enough of a reason to leave. We followed this leader. We believed he might redeem Israel. The Roman problem we have, Romans all over our streets, he's not going to do anything about that now. He's now dead. There are too many of those Romans to think about fighting. Oh, Emmaus. Emmaus is much safer. Nothing ever happens in Emmaus. We can just go there. Maybe there is somebody else. Maybe another Messiah figure will come. Maybe someone who will actually deal with the Roman problem. Maybe they'll appear out of somewhere. Maybe they'll appear in Emmaus, even though it seems unlikely. Finally, it was a good story. It was a good story while it lasted. We followed Jesus and all of these things were happening. That seemed like something we could get involved in. But now, I don't see this story working anymore. Now it's time to go. Have you been where they are. Now, you probably haven't been in Jerusalem heading to Emmaus, but I would suspect, like me, you've got moments in your life experience where there's been times where the story or a part of it has seemed broken enough where you've said, I really need to get out of here. 
there are too many bears in this story right now. I really need to get moving. I really need to find something new. This story at this point seems broken enough that there seems to be no good solution. My mind just can't figure out a way that this can be okay anymore. It doesn't have to be the whole story, but maybe just an element of it, a particular thing that makes you think, ah, I don't know if I can keep doing this. When I was in Detroit, there was a pastor of a church that was growing rapidly and they had two services that were just packed with people. They were talking about a third service. Just so many great things happening. But he talks about his experience in between those two services where he shut himself in a broom closet and sat contemplating this question. If I start driving now, How far away will I be before people realize I'm not here for the second service? If I just leave now, everything seemed to be good, but to him, this story was just so hard, so difficult. He just started to say, if I just start driving like 20 miles, 30 miles, you see what you guys can do to people? Just to warn you, just, you know, I just haven't found myself in a broom closet yet, but you never know. There are moments where we have a story where we say, "How, how far can I get away from it? I was reading this book the other day called You Are Not Your Own. And it starts to sketch out everything in the author's mind that he sees as wrong with the world currently. And he starts to get you into a place of just, wow, what do I do with this book? So I turned to Laura in the midst of it and I said, do you want to just homestead? Do you want to just buy a piece of like property? Because that's easy. Um, We'll just grow crops and sustain a family and all of those different things. Everything will be just a breeze. Uh, And then the author in this beautiful moment says, right now, I've probably got you in a place where you're like, we should just homestead. And I was like, he caught me. Um, There was these times in life where we experience just, what, what do I do with this place in the story? It feels like it would be easier just to get out, just to exit. I even drew you a, gave you a picture of, apparently I wanted to homestead and get about 40 years older. I would just be happy, just easy. Everything's easy when you homestead. We have moments in our stories where we just wonder what we do with it. It just, it just feels a little broken. Like, where do we go from here? Maybe we don't ask the same questions or make the same statements that these first followers of Jesus did, but there's probably other ones that we do make. We might say something like this. This situation, whatever it is, this is beyond fixing. This business, this marriage, this family, this society, this could be anything. I can't keep doing this. I feel so depleted. I'm running on empty. There is no energy anymore. I just can't sustain, can't sustain. They, whoever they are, business partner, husband, wife, kids, family members, teammates, they will never change. And then this last one, this last one is the one that gets me over and over again. I just need a fresh start. You know, sometimes you have that feeling if you could just blank slate everything, if you could just go back to the, oh, wow, I'd do it differently this time, but everything, everything would be fine. Whatever the reason is, we feel this way about different elements of our story. And maybe, if you're honest, you feel this way about the Jesus story in general. Maybe you look at the church and say, I, I just don't know if this thing works 
anymore. You see all of the different ways that the church has impacted society in ways that might be negative. You say, why am I still committing myself to this story? It just feels hopeless. Whatever you might say, whatever I might say, to put it into the language of Shakespeare, really what we're saying is there are too many bears in this story. The story is too broken. The story is too fractured. And it just seems easier just to get out. It just seems easier to go to homesteading and we end up where these disciples are. On the day of resurrection, not waiting to see if the story changes, they are just, they're getting out of town and they're heading to Emmaus. Why Emmaus? Just because it's safe, just because it's not Jerusalem. We've just got to, we've just got to get out of there. And in moments when I feel like that, I have to ask myself some questions. First question I have to ask myself is this. I have to ask myself, is the story broken? Not is the story uncomfortable, not is the story what I want it to be right now, but I have to ask, is it broken? Is the problem with the story, and this is just a test case, or is the problem maybe with me in the midst of that story? Other stories you definitely need to leave, definitely. There are stories, abusive relationships, different things that we could conjure up that we'd say, you've got to get out of that thing. There are ways that we are fully able to hope for a different story, to believe that God can change narratives. Absolutely, but there's definitely times, I would suggest, where we have moments where we say, I'd just like to get out of this part of this thing. I'd just like to move into something new and I'd like it to happen quickly. There's definitely times where I say that. And sometimes, sometimes it's not the story. Sometimes it's me. Because this is a confession, right? This is, this is me being able to say, this is me being able to be honest. There's, there's times where, where I have a tendency to make myself the center of the story. When I use language like the story's broken, when, when I pick an element of life and say, yeah, this isn't working as it's supposed to work, what I really mean is not that it's not functioning as a whole. I mean, it's not feeling good to me right now. It's not functioning the way that Alex would have it be. Alex is the center of the world, right? And, and it just, it just, I want this to adapt. I want this to change or I want to blank slate this thing. I want to fix it. It's interesting that when Jesus conjured up his faith, his way, that what it was to look, uh, to live life in, in his way and with his heart, this is one of the things he said. This is Luke chapter 9. This is just after some of his followers have started to realize that he is who he said he was. They've started to twig. There's a light bulb moment. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. The Son of Man must suffer many things, he said. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then Jesus said to all of them, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, daily and follow me. Unpopularly, Jesus said this as the Jerusalem landscape was littered with Roman crosses, with people that had been crucified on them. In the midst of something that was a sign of Roman oppression about everything, everything about the way you know, we've talked about, the, the world shouldn't work this way, we should fix it, we should go back to the old way. It's littered with these crosses and Jesus is pointing to things of execution and saying, if you want to follow me, it looks like those guys on those things. It's just a horrible way to start a faith unless you mean it right. It's just a horrible sort of invitation. 
Somewhere, someone once said that we have made this incredible shift, this, this, this shift that we can only make with our 21st century minds. We have taken a faith that began with a founder who said this, if anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross. And we've somehow turned it into, Jesus said, come to me and everything in your life will be wonderful. And it's like the antithesis, right? So if you're listening for the first time, if you're on video at home or wherever, I'm sorry for the deeply unpopular truth that Jesus said uncomfortable things like this. There is a huge part of me that would like to magic it away and say, Jesus, this isn't how we build a large community of faith. This isn't how we build religion. This is not good marketing. Like you can't Instagram that in a way that is compelling. And yet he chose to say it. Sometimes what I have to ask myself is when I have a story that I feel is broken, when I feel like there's too many bears and I'm getting out of the story for a good reason, it just needs to change. The problem, if I'm honest, is this. It's not the bears. It's the crosses. It's what it takes. It's the sacrifice that it takes to live in the story. Sometimes if I'm honest, that that part is the problem. Henry Nouwen said this, this is what Jesus means when he asks you to take up your cross. He encourages you to recognize and embrace your unique suffering and to trust that your way to salvation lies therein. Taking up your cross means, first of all, befriending your wounds and letting them reveal to you your own truth. He encourages you to recognize and embrace your unique suffering and to trust that your way to salvation lies therein. He doesn't say, get out of it. He says, recognize that I might be working in it. And that, again, just deeply uncomfortable, deeply counterintuitive to what we would believe in the 21st century. Another writer, Jenny Allen, said this, when the enemy invites us to taste the fruit of self-importance and be like God, we can choose instead to take up our cross and follow Jesus, knowing that our identity is anchored in him alone. I would love to know what he's going through the mind of Cleopas and his friend as they just get out of town. But what I would suggest is it seems like the story can't be fixed. It seems like this is a self-preservation thing. And while I haven't got their exact experience, I know that for me so often, my movements, my decisions, it's a self-preservation thing. It's about me as the center. But something else as well. I have a tendency to function as though Jesus isn't present in the story. There's this other weird 21st century invention. It's fascinating. You might call it functional atheism. Now, I'm not suggesting every single one of us in this room don't really believe in God. We may even say things like, one day everything will be good. There's this story that's still to develop. But what we definitely seem to have a tendency towards is this. We say all of those things. We believe those things. But... The moment life gets difficult and it doesn't fit what we want or expect, we actually really don't believe some of the things that we say we do. We say Jesus is present when life is good, and yet in those moments, we, we don't. When it gets difficult, when it comes down to it, if we're honest, it's this weird tendency that I think that we have, and I do this all the time too. I have a tendency to make myself the center of the story, and I have a tendency to function as though Jesus isn't present. And isn't that fascinating? Isn't that what Cleopas and his friend do? Fleeing from Jerusalem, this place where everything happens, to Emmaus, this town that nothing happens, they are incredibly joined on this journey. The God who does everything in Jerusalem has left Jerusalem, is journeying with them as they go in the wrong direction. And they don't even know it. They're not even aware that he's there. 
And that, my friends, is me to a T. When I am in that mood, I don't even know he's there. I am oblivious to everything he might be doing. And I love the way that Jesus brings them around to his point of view in the story. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then this is the moment of reveal, the moment where the big secret of the story, which has been almost a microcosm of everything about Jesus' story. People have constantly missed who he is, constantly been uncertain about what he's doing and need their eyes opened When he was with them at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now, a couple of fun little, if you're you're like into Bible nerding as I unashamedly am, there's a couple of fun little allusions going on here. One, Jesus has done this before. This is a kind of a look back at the the feeding of the 5,000. He's taken bread, he's shared it with everyone, and that's the moment where his first followers start to say, oh, He might be something more. He might be doing something special. We may have found the guy, the Messiah, the person who's going to change everything. So it's definitely a little throwback to that. But then just below, then their eyes were opened. Seems like Luke is talking about Genesis chapter 3. In that story, Adam and Eve eat a piece of fruit and it says their eyes were opened and they saw both good and evil or they knew both good and evil. In this moment, their eyes are opened and they see Jesus and the new story that he has created. So a fun couple of little things going on there, but really, really it seems the center, the main illusion that's been made here is back to a table where Jesus gathered with his earliest followers and broke bread and handed it to each of them. Now these two probably weren't there at that moment, but a pattern will be for this church in the future will be to consistently gather around a table to take two very common things, bread and wine, and to hand them around and say somewhere in this moment, Jesus is present in a particular way, just like he is for them. In this moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He disappeared from their sight. In a moment of fleeing the story, in a moment of saying, we've just got to get out, in a moment of self-preservation, in a moment of leaving the place that God is working to head to a place where God never works, these people experience the God of the universe who it seems chases after them, captures them, and pulls them back into his story. All of this happens around a table just like this. For the rest of his book, Luke will constantly talk about how these earliest followers gathered and broke bread together. They gathered and broke bread together. They gathered and broke bread together. They constantly came back to this table to remember Jesus and to experience his presence. And so what we get to do as a community in the midst of stories that some of us would like to run away from, in the midst of stories that this seems a safe space from that we don't want to go back to, we get to come to a table and we get to experience the God of the universe who is present with us in the most likely, unlikely of places. 
It doesn't seem when you read the rest of the Bible that God ever spends time in Emmaus, but he does here just for them. So we're going to come to the table and I'd like you in this space to just bring whatever stories you have. Good, bad, broken, difficult, scary, whatever they look like. They return to the story. Jesus meets with them at a table and something about that experience gives them the courage to return back to Jerusalem. Now what awaits them in Jerusalem is not easy. It's difficult. Most of Jesus' earliest followers were killed for their faith. They went and shared it all over the place. And most of them died, some through the same mechanism that Jesus died. They don't go back to ease. They don't go back to comfort. But they do go back knowing his presence. Were not our hearts burning with us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. If the journey to Emmaus was strange, why would they go? Why would they just suddenly pick up and leave? The journey back to Jerusalem is even more unusual. It's now nighttime. Nobody's traveling on roads in this era at this time. And yet there they are stumbling through the dark, headed back to a story that they now believe in in new ways, a story that is still difficult, but they now know that Jesus is present with them in. When you come to this table, when you bring your story, the only thing right now that I suggest you need to know is, is Jesus present with me in this story? Don't need to know whether it's a story to leave. Don't need to know whether it's a story to run back to. You just simply need to say, Jesus, I need you to be present with me. And one of the greatest joys of pastoring a community is this. I don't know every single story in the room. How could I? But I do know some of them. And I do know for some of you, you are living in the midst of a story that you say, I don't want this story. This doesn't feel like it should. It could be a family thing, a work thing, a health thing, a spiritual thing. One of the joys of pastoring a community is not that you have to go through those stories, but it's to see what it is to see a group of people who can stand in the midst of those stories walk towards a table that is 2,000 years old and say, God, I believe you are present here in a particular way. And even though everything inside of me would love to run away from this story, I'm gonna be here with you, believe you will make yourself present and believe that might give me everything I need to live out this story in the way that you would in this world right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't pick the stories we live in, except we choose your story. We choose to believe that when you came, died and rose again, that that changed everything, that this is a story about everything that covers everything. When elements of our story get funky, when they get out of whack, Oh, definitely there's times we want to leave. Definitely there's times where we want to say, I didn't sign up for this. Definitely there's times where we say, God, would you just fix it? And sometimes, incredibly, you do. 
sometimes we look at a story and you change it. We can look back at times where you have moved and it has, everything has looked different because you did something spectacular. And then there's other times where we say, no God, you haven't changed the story, but seems like you're changing me in the midst of that story. Maybe that's what it means to pick up our cross and follow you. To trust that in the midst of those stories, you are still present. Thank you for the way that you walked with these first followers. You left the place where everything happened and you walked to a town where nothing happens. They took the wrong direction and you were still there present and they didn't know it. But God, sometimes we just need a moment where we do know it. And we know we're forgetful people. We'll probably leave and forget some of what we experience. But in this moment, as we come to your table, this 2,000 year old table, as we break bread and we drink wine, would you make yourself present to us? Would you comfort those of us that are afflicted? And for those of us that are just a little bit too comfortable, would you afflict us and wake us up? The things that you've done before, God, would you do again? Would we see, would we pray we would see miracles change, that the story would fix, would heal? But we also realise that a greatest miracle is just to experience you in fresh ways. And so wherever we are in our journey, whether we've never stepped into any kind of faith, and this isn't the most attractive sounding faith right now to pick up a cross, God, I pray that you would have us, give us the courage to do that. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.